Hello everyone, I'm Ian McAllister. I'm Oliver Kinner. And I'm Jamie Adams. And this is Brainwaves episode 119, bringing you the best in tabletop gaming news. These are the headlines for the week of the 17th of April, 2023. Klaus Teuber passes, and Magnate by name, Magnate by nature. All this and more on this episode of Brainwaves. Following a brief and severe illness, legendary game designer Klaus Teuber passed on the 1st of April this year. Klaus won the Spiel des Jahres an impressive four times with Barbarossa in 1988, Adel verpflichtet in 1990, Drunter und Drüber in 1991, and finally in 1995 with The Settlers of Catan, Die Siedler. It is for Catan that Klaus Teuber is best known. For many in the hobby, this game represented the introduction to the world of the modern hobby board game. Its influence was undeniable and since its release has sold more than 40 million copies and been translated into more than 40 languages. It is seen by many as the first of a new wave of board games that opened up the hobby to more people and led to the massive growth the tabletop industry has experienced in the last couple of decades. The official Catan Twitter account put out this statement on April the 4th. It is with profound sadness that we at Catan Studio acknowledge the passing of Klaus Teuber, legendary game designer and creator of the beloved board game Catan. Our hearts go out to Klaus's family during this incredibly difficult time. While Klaus's contributions to the board gaming industry are immeasurable, we will remember him most as a kind and selfless human being, an inspirational leader, and most importantly, as a friend. His legacy will continue to inspire and shape the gaming community for years to come. We encourage you to honour Klaus's memory by being kind to one another, pursuing your creative passions fearlessly, and enjoying a game with your loved ones. Klaus's impact on the world of gaming will never be forgotten. The death was reported across the tabletop gaming hobby, but also across the wider culture, as Catan had an impact outside what we would think of as the hobby. There was an outpouring of grief and fond memories shared across the tabletop community, and we would urge you to read Dan Thoreau's piece on the place that Catan had in his life. A better obituary we cannot imagine. So, I guess, I assume all of us here on the cast have played Catan. I certainly can remember playing it back in Germany before I moved over here with friends at games nights many, many times. And then when I came over to the UK, I obviously played it a lot and um, we traded a lot of wood for sheep. And I'm sure that people have used <laughs> yeah. that phrase as well. So that that's my memory of Catan. Yeah, Ian? I played a huge amount of it at university. I Settlers of Catan, I don't I still I don't own a copy anymore. Uh, but yeah, I played a huge amount of university. It was one of the first games I picked up from Black Lion Games in Edinburgh when I first moved to university and played it with loads of friends at university including my now brother-in-law uh david Dolliver. uh and yeah you could potentially argue that settlers of time was responsible for me meeting my wife if you'd like to go down that route uh yeah i just played a huge amount of it loads of it on like on like tiny tiny floors and student accommodation and just loved the hell out of it played so much of it yeah definitely my introduction to the modern hobby without question i've uh, i've only played it once i thought it was fine <laughs> it's a memory that's that's fine it's worth sharing but no yeah, it's, it's, it's a memory after not playing it for a very long time and feeling like oh maybe i don't need to i finally played it and got thoroughly trounced by friends who not only have played it a lot but also very good at it and maybe that's why i went oh it's fine 
I'm not saying I'm bitter or anything. I'm just, um, <laughs> what's the word? Bitter, that's it. Yeah. No, I'm not bitter. It's fine. No, I mean, Catan, as we say, has had a huge impact. And oh, yeah. has gone through various yeah. new iterations. You know, it was known as Settlers of Catan, then just Settlers, yeah. and now Catan. And it's obviously a huge brand. And oh. yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't realize it was officially called Settlers. I just thought it was just Settlers of Catan, then Catan. That makes, yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. I, I, th- I think I remember reading about uh, Settlers of Catan in like one of the first issues of Arcane. Did you ever read Arcane, Jamie? Might be a little before. Ian, you come on, mate. I. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm feeling old. Arcane was a, a future publishing magazine in the mid 90s, I think. Uh, it was I'm not, not going to lie to Ian. Yeah, I, I, was, I, I was just entering now. primary in the mid 90s. Yeah, just, just now. Be quiet. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like 10 years younger than you, Ian, I'm afraid. I, I, shush. I don't, I don't like to think about it. It's terrible. But yeah, I, I remember reading a review of Settlers of Catan in uh, Arcade Magazine uh, way, way back in the day when it still existed, which, is, which was a good magazine. I, I think I've still got some encounter pullouts you could get from that on my shelves. But yeah, I, I, no, no matter what you think about Catan, no matter what you like critically like about or dislike Catan, it's undeniable how much influence that game had. It opened up the modern hobby for a huge number of people. And yeah, yeah it, it led to the modern hobby as we see it now. It's and it, an and I think it still thing. is a game that sort of leads people into the hobby that oh, yeah, might otherwise try it. So definitely. Oh, no, com- yeah. Completely, completely. I'm not... Yeah, you, you see yeah, on it's... supermarket shelves in Morristons, all sorts of like yeah. regular places where you just buy games, you see Settlers of Catan or Catan as it's now more commonly known. And yeah, or versions thereof. Yeah, just undeniably a huge influence a, a huge loss for the community definitely our thoughts are with the family and yeah absolutely and a man is not dead while his name is still spoken and his name will still be spoken for a very long time mostly very going long. oh come on how could you that's not fair i absolutely have the <laughs> longest road <laughs> indeed Over the last couple of months, we've been reporting on the troubles besetting UK games publisher Inside the Box Games. A couple of casts ago, we covered the liquidation of that company. At the time, Pierre Blenkern, the CEO of the company, had hinted that they were in negotiations for the assets of Inside the Box to be bought. On April the 5th, James Naylor posted to the Naylor Games website announcing that they were buying Inside the Box's remaining assets. From that post... I'm proud to announce that Naylor Games has made its second acquisition, buying all assets of Inside the Box board games. All of Inside the Box's board games will become part of our product range, and, for now, the brand will be retained as an imprint of Naylor Games while we decide its future. During its existence, ITB brought many fantastic products to market, not least Subterra, a modern classic of the cooperative genre. Unfortunately, due to some poor strategic choices and a combination of unprecedented market conditions, the business became non-viable as a trading concern. As a result, the business will be liquidated. It will be completely shut down. What funds are left are being divided between whatever creditors UK law recognises and in accordance with a repayment order set out by the UK government. Generally, staff owed wages are among the first to be paid. We hope that our purchase has allowed at least this to happen. But given that UK tax authorities are next in line, we expect there will be nothing left. We are not party to any of the internal operations of this process. To be absolutely clear, while Naylor Games acquired the assets, we did not buy the business itself. 
This business, along with all of its debts and liabilities, will, very shortly, cease to exist. There is more to this statement, but we wanted to let you hear more on this acquisition from the very best source. To that end, I secured an interview with James that was conducted on the 11th of April. James is an executive producer of the cast, which means he does support us financially. Uh, we'll let you listen to that interview now. I'm very delighted to say that we've been joined by James Naylor in the Giant Brain studio. How are you doing, James? Uh, I'm doing very well, thank you very much, Ian. Very well. I'm very, very busy. Uh, but, you are indeed. <laughs> uh, but, but yes, as you may have noticed, um, but I'm also very excited. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what Naylor Games have been up to over the last couple of years? Yes, absolutely. So uh, I designed a board game called Magnate the First City, uh, which I decided a few years back to self-publish. Uh, we got it on Kickstarter, did pretty well, and then we delivered it at the very end of 2021. And uh, sort of with the Kickstarter, it kind of gave me a bit of a lust for making more games. So we started beavering away, making multiple different games uh, in the background while we were kind of focusing on promoting Magnate. Uh, then uh, we sort of realized that we were kind of quite good at logistics. I think my kind of operations and software background has meant I've, I think I've got quite a lot of skills there especially when we're sure. managing lots of information. So we decided to get into that, and we sort of ended up working with a lot of companies behind the scenes on helping them kind of get their games around the world. Uh, and we were sort of, uh, in the meantime, spinning up multiple different software projects, sorry, different um, game projects alongside that. Um, so hopeful to bring our, our second game to market, but we've been a bit busy with uh, buying companies. So in, in fact... Uh, the first yeah. one we did last year, and obviously this is, this is now our second acquisition. Yeah, so yeah, the reason we are, of course, talking today is that you've recently acquired the assets of Inside the Box Games, which is currently in the process of liquidation. What led to you making that decision to obtain ITB's assets? A very good question. It was a few different things. So I think, so we did, our, as I said, we did our first acquisition last year with East Street Games. Uh, yeah. They were kind of looking very much to kind of get out, uh, but they had made a couple of, you know, great little products that were sort of small, more family weight games. And um, I sort of said to them, well, look, I'd like to continue their legacy and I would like to uh, continue promoting these titles. And um, we ended up agreeing to that. Um, I bought them out uh, and we found the whole process, although there was quite a lot of complexity to it, went really well. And people were very interested in what we were doing. It allowed us to start selling those products more um, because we had the existing links with different distributors, etc. And, and, and it made me think, well, okay, maybe we could do this again. And then I heard about the kind of some of the issues that ITB were having as a business. Um, yeah. I hadn't actually been a backer of any of their projects. I, I knew Subterra, for example, very well, um, but I hadn't backed any of their recent Kickstarters. And I just thought, well, okay, this is going to be a lot bigger, but potentially we could do something here to maybe save this a bit because there's some really amazing games in ITB's catalog. And I figured there's all these people so excited by them and it will be a real tragedy if they never get their, never get their games. Maybe someone yeah. could step in to solve this. And so about October last year, I started investigating the possibility of, um, of, of making this acquisition. 
Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Inside the Box had several Kickstarter projects on the go. Uh, what are the current status of those projects and how are you hoping to resolve the issues around them? So in the end, uh, three of the projects, the, the board game projects, that would be Cryptex, Subterra 2 and um, Aquanauts, were all manufactured. So right. uh, all the products exist and they're all currently in China. Okay. The Alba product was never physically manufactured, although the additional version that's close to final was produced. Um, okay. Uh, so uh, that's where the kind of they are today. And so we sort of once we worked that out, we found that out under under the long process of you know under NDA of exploring the yeah. company's assets, working with them on what we could do to buy it, and ultimately for most of the time working with the liquidators we realized it would be possible to deliver those three at least physically. Uh, and so we thought, well, okay, this is, this is a golden opportunity to actually save this one for the backers. Um, so we thought we've got to go for it. So how will, how will you be resolving those three physical products then? And will they, the backers still have to pay for shipping or anything like that? Or is it, are you just doing it out of your own pocket? How's, it, how's that going to happen? So a lot of the process is very much out of our own pocket. But when it comes to actually shipping it to the backers, we decided that we would uh, the best option that would be sustainable would be to offer them the chance to have their games again if they're prepared to pay for shipping. Uh, because the amount, unfortunately, the money that had been charged for shipping had already been consumed by the ITB business. So, right. and obviously we're just an asset buyer. We, we're not buying the sure. company. The company will just disappear forever quite soon um and uh taking all its debts with it uh so we have no capital to do sufficient capital to do the shipping costs because we're talking about a vast amount of product we're talking about um i mean i i can't go into exact details but you're talking in the order of 100 cubic meters or close to something something wow. something like that so um it's an enormous uh, undertaking in terms of that. So there's no way we could afford to ship that ourselves. It wouldn't, and it just wouldn't make financial sense for us to do that. So we yeah. figured, well, what's the second best option? Um, understandably, some of the backers are going to be miffed. They have to pay for shipping again twice. I would be in their situation, to be honest. But we yeah. sort of took the bet that overall, they'd probably rather get something uh, than, than nothing in most cases. And then what we've decided to do is uh, for, um, for the remainder of it, uh, for, for, the, for the backers who don't want to take, don't want to pay for shipping, we're going to use that money to pay the cost of freighting the games and sort and managing the entire process. And then we're going to uh, donate uh, some money to charity, and we're going to select a suitable kind of game-related charity. Is the idea uh, because again, I, I don't want us to be profiting effectively from other people's disappointment. So, yeah. uh, and, and and so far, I have to say, the response to this has been fantastic, and I think. Most backers really appreciate it because, to be honest, in the vast majority of cases, what tends to happen at this point is assets get acquired. Uh, company says we don't owe you squat, and from a legal perspective, you know we don't. We don't owe the backers yeah. anything from a legal perspective. But then they just say hard luck, and I just felt like that's a bit crap. And I would rather say here's a chance to get what you paid for. Yeah, that's completely fair. So, um. We mentioned a couple of times there that ITB are obviously liquidating. Have you actually bought the brand of ITB or is it just its assets? Will the ITB brand just sort of disappear along with the company? So the ITB brand is part of the asset purchase. So uh, the right. terms on which we purchased it is literally everything. So everything sure. that can be an asset of ITB is now ours. So that includes all intellectual property. 
So uh, that very much includes the ITB brand. What we do with the ITB brand in the long term, I don't honestly know. I think that's one that we're going to have to consider. Obviously, in the short term, it will continue to exist just because it's on all the boxes and it's yeah. uh, part of our stable officially now. And we'll be talking about that probably at UKGE. Um, but whether in the long run we retain it, I don't know. I, I think in his last years, it, it got very tarnished, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Going from maybe a, you know, a really exciting uk startup that a lot of people for very good reasons um had huge confidence in from the point of view of its product range to being something that didn't make people feel so good anymore so we'll yeah, have to see i that's, think that's a, um, a bit of an understatement for sure <laughs> yeah we know there are companies that are handling the foreign language versions of the games are you involved in helping out the companies with the foreign language versions of the games, or is that a completely separate matter? Well, we're, we're working really closely with them. I'm actually already in touch with all of the uh, different localizers uh, in different languages. But um, because arrangements with them were not all managed identically, uh, the situation is quite complex in terms of which, right. which, for example, some backers may be due to receive more product, um, some may not. And at the moment, I wouldn't like to comment on anything individual with those sure. localizers because... Just because it's so complicated uh, in, yeah. in terms of th those pieces. I mean, you know, you, if you involve another party in production, this always happens. But I have to say, so far, um, it's been brilliant uh, working with them and talking to all of them. They've all been very friendly. It's very obvious they're all really keen to uh, do the best they can by the backers of what's what's realistic and achievable. And you know, I'm hoping that we get to continue working with uh, the same firms uh, into the future because. There's loads of other games we're, we're going to want to bring into um, languages outside of English. So, uh, yeah, so it's been very positive so far. Do you see a future for the asset, the, some of the games you've acquired from inside the box? Do you see you sort of coming back to those properties and producing more in those lines in the future? Uh, for some of them, certainly, yes. I think it would be fair to say, for example, I actually think from what we've seen, the Subterra series still has a, a lot of potential life in it. And in fact... ITB did have various uh, various plans for, for future versions of it that are quite interesting. Um, I think some of the games definitely have a have a real life ahead of them. I, I don't think they all do. Um, sure. I think speaking candidly, I think ITB would have been better off having been a wee bit more focused. I mean, our approach maybe is too extreme. We like to take years over each title and and. That's difficult to sustain unless you have another business like we do on the logistics side uh, yes. to maintain that kind of thing. But I just think they really went too far the other way. They had a, they had a lot of projects in development as well as things they produced yeah. that probably would, were not entirely advisable. Um, but I will say is something that's really impressed me is that the kind of final end quality of everything that we've seen is really good. I think that's something that ITB were very committed to was the kind of final produced quality of, of, of their products. And uh, so, so who knows? It might be that, that most of the titles have a kind of ongoing life. I'm, we're just going to discover that one, I guess. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to touch upon on that sort of su sustainability thing just, just for a moment in this mm. interview. So you mentioned in the update you posted to Naila Games blog that uh, you think, and I'll quote from it, a substantial chunk of the industry has been operating an unsustainable model. 
Now, at Brainways, we've certainly reported on companies that appear to be struggling like Inside the Box and most recently Mythic. Mm. Uh, could you elaborate on your thoughts for us what you think that it takes to be a viable tabletops game company in the current climate? Yeah, so I think kind of what's happened is maybe just par for the course in a lot of uh, yeah. booms because we've seen such a sustained growth of tabletop mm. games in the last 10 years. And what yeah. happens is people become a bit over-exuberant and they tend to start thinking that there's the future's always going to be so unbelievably um what's the right phrase to use here perhaps bountiful that it's just about growth and you can just you can price things aggressively to get as many customers as possible and you know even if the projects today aren't profitable don't worry because tomorrow we're going to score it big and uh Fundamentally, what this has meant is if you've seen a lot of underpricing of products uh, where pricing is, is put forward as a strategy, but realistically, it's, it's not a strategy because it's, uh, it's, it's just making it not possible to make enough money to, to pay for all of your overheads. Uh, shipping levels, that are, shipping that's really underpriced, and something that's a bit frustrating thing on Kickstarter at the moment is that the way that people often price their sh- estimated shipping is that they're, they're substantially discounting it in reality. And this has created an effect where people start seeing realistic shipping costs and they go, oh, that's very expensive. And, unf- yeah. and that creates a, a pretty negative environment because reality is the, uh, the, company, the only way the company has to recoup those funds is to increase the price of the product. But obviously that's also constrained. And in the end, they think, oh, well, I don't want to go too expensive because I won't get enough customers, assuming that they'll, they'll make the money back on the second print run or the third print run. But the reality is, is that the vast majority of games now are only ever going to get one print run. And that's because they are too niche. They are landing into a market with thousands of new releases every year. And uh, that means that if, if you're betting on, I need my second print run and second title to be profitable, you're, you're already taking an enormous risk because yeah. it's, it's such a buyer's market that it doesn't. And, and I would say, it's, from my perspective, it makes a lot more sense to sacrifice a little bit of growth and impressive headline numbers in the short run to build a business that's more sustainable in the long term where you're consistently making profit. Because in the end, that means everyone wins. You win. Your customers win because you're not suddenly going bust and disappearing on them. Um, Your suppliers win for the same reasons. And everyone benefits, but it just requires being maybe a little bit less extraordinarily exuberant uh, at the beginning (laughs) of the process. Interesting. I I could talk to you about that kind of thing for ages but we don't have time in this little interview right now so uh nearly games itself seems to have been undergoing a period of strong growth how are you managing that expansion and what are your plans for the future uh very good question so um we have indeed been and i i guess our route has been a bit unorthodox because we've grown quite a bit through acquisition and it's certainly something we would definitely consider doing continuing to doing rather into the future um it's been quite a challenge because we've taken on quite a lot of new things the back office business particularly is suddenly really growing where we're managing other companies logistics services for example for them um and uh the way that we've done this though um is just by trying to work smarter rather than harder so i'm always investing for example into automation uh i'm always Uh, trying to bring on the right people for the team who can really execute rather than necessarily just trying to throw money at the problem and recruit whoever we're we're very careful in how we expand in that sense and i'm always keeping an eye on the cost base um making sure we're getting lots of value i think we will be growing the team again sometime soon actually because we're going to need 
Um, we're just we are going to need more people to do more things. But I, I always just think it's about being sensible. And you look at your cost base. You look at a realistic idea of what your revenue is going to be in the future, which means start with something optimistic and then do a pessimistic analysis of it and bring your estimates down. And then uh, if you do that bit right and you're mindful for, to when you're getting overloaded and you can start bringing people on, then you can have that more sustainable growth. For example, with uh, uh, ITB, it's very unlikely that we would make another acquisition this year because there will be so much to do just consolidating the ITB's assets into our business that that will take a lot of time and we don't want to be unrealistic about what we can bite off. Um, also, although we've got a big slate of projects, all of those have been in development for quite a long time. Uh, and so as a result, they've been, you know, we've been beavering away at them behind the scenes for quite a while. So I think it's, it's that overall strategy of slow, steady growth, I think is, uh, is very much the way forward. That's great. Thank you very much for your time today, James. It sounds like the ITB assets are in good hands and hopefully you'll have success getting those backers sorted out with our Kickstarter projects. Uh, would love to have you back on again sometime. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I thought James was very candid in the interview and he set realistic expectations in the rest of the post. We'll share about what backers can expect from Nailer Games as they try and resolve all the outstanding issues. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to James. He, he, was, he was very honest about the problems facing ITB and the issues that they have now inherited at Nailer Games. I do have hope that Nailer Games can help a lot of backers get their games. It is probably going to mean a little bit of more financial pain for the backers. As James said in the interview, they are going to need to ask for some shipping money because a lot of that cash has disappeared into inside the box at some point. So yeah, but hopefully th this will bring some of those problems to resolution. And from what James was saying in the interview, uh, backers seem quite happy that he they are taking charge and there is some progress being made. I, I certainly think it's good news that uh, Nailer Games is yeah. now uh, owner of the uh, assets yeah. and some of the IPs and things. And yes, I think we all have to accept that the company ITB is gone yeah. and stock is where it is and Nader games can't you know they don't have the financial power to just ship things yeah. over and, and swallow up the cost all they can do is try and get you know find the best possible compromise to get the games to backers and yeah. hopefully you know i think james was also saying that uh, some of the upcoming games may not be produced and there's some problems there but you know i'm sure that the interview will explain a bit more and more information will come out but certainly i think on the whole this is good news and there have been some really good games in itv so it's nice to see that these hopefully will live on in some shape or form yeah from from from, from what you were saying in the interview um uh subterra 2 cryptex and aquanauts are all physically produced they're just in china um alba never got physically produced there's a digital version of it but uh, alba which is was the game book that ITB were making that never got physically produced. So yeah, they're needing a little bit more money from backers in order to get those copies shipped. And there's an alternative version there. If you don't, if you basically won't want anything to do with it, you can basically donate your copy to ITB who will sell, sorry, to Nailer Games who will sell it off to charity instead and they'll donate some money to charity uh, just so something is being done with those. And, and James seemed very understanding that he can could completely understand that some of the backers would be annoyed by the situation because yeah they've been waiting for so long for their games and now they've been asked for more money and he 
he totally understands there's financial pain involved there. He seems like a guy who's very, very much got his head screwed on straight. And Naylor Games is in the ascendant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we, I, I backed Magnate. I was very pleased with that campaign. Uh, we previewed it when we were still doing previews. Uh, I still need to get my coffee and Magnate to the table. Sorry, James. Uh, <laughs> but I will I will do eventually one, uh, and uh, actually write a proper review on it. <laughs> I may have won. I may have won the one game I played, but it's fine. I'm sorry, James. It's fine. Maybe it's not yeah. my game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would like to play. It. I mean, I might bring it through next time I come through to Glasgow, Jamie, and try and learn it with the uh, the the learning deck thing that they've got built into it. Because I'm I'm tried that. Jamie, I think James will take that um, praise. You know, if, if Magnet is as good as Catan in your experience, <laughs> <laughs> it means a lot. A now, okay, <clears throat> moving on, <laughs> moving on to the rest of the news. reported a couple of times on the dealings of company Mythic Games, publishers of Darkest Dungeon and the Super Fantasy Brawl games, among others. Now they're drawing fire for a Kickstarter that we'd forgotten existed. Now it seems Mythic might have as well. Back in 2019, Mythic funded the Monster Apocalypse board game to the tune of $1,310,177 out of a $100,000 target. That game has still yet to reach backers, despite Mythic having funded and at least partially delivered other games, such as Darkest Dungeon. In an update to the Kickstarter campaign, posted on the 31st of March 2023, they apologise for not having posted anything recently, and then go on to say, As you know, we are a small team now, and we have to focus on one delivery at a time. After delivering 20,000 backers of Darkest Dungeon, most of our human resources are currently focused on delivering another big project. Six Siege, scheduled for September to October. This will be our modus operandi from now on. We will take the necessary steps to deliver each project, soliciting backers as needed, and adapting to the specifics of each project. When one project is delivered, we will move on to the next. For Monster Apocalypse, it will be some time before we can move forward with production. However, we hope to show you the last validated elements in future updates. We also want to clear up any misunderstandings that may have arisen. Since the announcement of our restructuring, we have announced that we have sold some IPs and we have highlighted some games that we have kept. If Monster Apocalypse was not mentioned, it is only because it is not one of our own franchises, as it is an IP owned by our own partner, Privateer Press. However, we remain just as committed to this project and determined to deliver it as soon as our schedule allows. In other words, even though it is not an in-house IP that we will continue to develop, Monster Apocalypse is still a project that we care about and its delivery is still a priority. We are aware of the long wait and thank you for your patience. We wanted to draw our listeners' attention to this story as a warning about future Mythic projects and also to show how they're treating their backers. Right. Right. Very, very quickly, very quickly. Sorry. As you were reading that, Oliver, and I was listening to it, read it, and I went, so you have several projects involved and you're not, okay, I understand not every business is going to focus on one project, get it done, get it out, then move on to the next one. But why aren't you doing that right now? Yeah, exactly. Or you are doing it now, but why was that not the standard model? I know nothing about business. <laughs> but like to not even have moved into production with us while you've moved moved into production and delivered later games. 
Like, yeah. why are Kickstarter even allowing this company back on Kickstarter? I mean, I know what the answer to that question is. Don't get me wrong; that's a rhetorical. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's kind of madness, right? I mean, like, yeah, I, I didn't even, I'd even, for, I'd for, like as we say in the article, we'd even forgotten this exists until uh, until Adam and our Discord drew, drew our attention to it. Thank you very I much. I think Adam. I played Monster Apocalypse a long time ago in one of its kind of earlier iterations yeah, it, it was originally a collectible game produced by privateer press and then obviously mythic have done some sort of board game tie-up back in 2019 in order to produce this but yeah like i even to move in produ- production what have they been doing for like four years mate covid yeah yeah do, do an order of when when these games were basically promised and not do it in any order i think they're trying to take the ip as an excuse why that maybe hasn't happened yet or something sounds like it doesn't it yeah yeah i'd be very very wary folks of like backing mythic games i mean uh, i i've got a friend who backed darkest dungeon kickstarter he's they've got the first wave of it they're quite happy with it my first impressions of the game i have played it once is it's fine is this the um, It's Fine podcast? I'm going to, sorry, right now. So, Darkest <laughs> Dungeon is as good as Magnate, which is as good as Catan. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to cut your Magnate comment. Oh, <laughs> uh, Maybe. Well, I'll see. I'll see how it fits. He's a sponsor, after all. Yeah, but sponsor, also, yeah. so Oliver, you and I have just got to spend the rest of the podcast, if anyone mentions the word fine, just yeah. bring it up, and then we, ha- we have to do it so many yeah, times, Ian's got to keep it in. <laughs> you see, I know how this works, Ian. I know how to break you. Anyway, we didn't have time to reach out for comment from Mythic Games, and we'll do so for the next cast. And I think that's Yeah, I do, I do intend to do that for the next cast. So, yeah. Moving on, then, to the American Tabletop Awards for 2023, which have just been announced. The awards began in 2019 to celebrate the games deemed the best of the year, by a committee of folk known in the US tabletop scene. This year, the winners are... In the early gamers category, it's Boop by Smirk and Laughter Games, designed by Scott Brady. In the casual games category, Turing Machine, published by Les Scorpion Musk, and designed by Fabien Gridel and Johan Levé. In the strategy games category, Planet Unknown, published by Adam's Apple Games, LLC and designed by Ryan Lambert and Adam Reberg. And finally, in the complex games category, Carnegie, published by Pegasus Spiele and designed by Xavier George. Congratulations to all the winners. Now, Ian, I understand you have some thoughts on the American tabletop. Some comments. I'm going to say say right now, everybody strap in. It's not fine anyway. No, it's not fine. fine. It's not fine. Absolutely not fine. It's not as good as Catan, Magnate, and Darkest Dungeon. However, Ian has does have some thoughts on this. So I don't know who the American Tabletop Awards are for, right? So technically they started up technical thanks. Technically they started out as like an idea of like trying to do a sort of Spieltiaris kind of thing for American uh, for for the American tabletop community, right? That was the intention. But the way that they do this is that the commi- the committee themselves, and you can find out who the committee are for this particular year by going to the American Tabletop Awards site. It's all open. Who, who's, who's on there? The committee themselves submit games for consideration. And I'm going to quote from the FAQ on their site. The committee member should have played the game they are submitting for consideration. Good. <laughs> should 
being the operative word in there and doing an awful lot of heavy lifting. I'm sorry, but if you're going to try and do some sort of like big award for American tabletop games and make it be a thing, you have to have better standards than the committee member should have played the game that they are submitting for consideration. So, so let me get this that clear. Is absolutely madness. So let me get this clear. There's a committee who's who's deciding what games are put forward, and who's just actually choosing the winners? Is that the that committee, committee as well? is also choosing the winners as well? And they may not even have played the game, and they may not have even played the game. And there's some sort of like sort of vague sort of look at ethics, like a committee member can't submit a game on behalf of another committee member who might be involved with that game, that kind of thing. But Whenever they like with the Spiel des Jahres and, and, and other awards like the Astior and, and, and other big tabletop game awards, there's some build up, right? Usually there's like these awards, these games have been submitted and these yeah, games yeah. are being considered, and here's the short list, like the Oscars, you know, there's a short list, etc. No, there's also a long list, and there's a lot of heavy campaigning by various film studios. They put a lot of money into that campaigning, yeah. But I'm trying to make a just a comparison, you know, there's some build up with, with yeah. the other awards. With the American Tabletop Awards, they're just sort of like splatted out. They just sort of emerge at some point. Here's the American Tabletop Awards. People talk about it for like a day and then it disappears. Not even the publishers seem to care. Is there a physical award or a logo that people... No, there, the there's box? a logo I that you can put on a There's a, a logo. I don't, I don't think I've ever actually seen it on a box. I mean, it's only a few years old, so whatever. But yeah, I feel like... I, I, just, I just don't get who this is for and what they're trying to do i don't understand like they they don't have like the rigmarole of like the spiel to like no, be properly like a proper critics like here are the best games of the year yeah and the spiel has its own like criteria and yeah not all games get considered and there's reasons for that but i i just don't understand it every year it just sort of like emerges and then it's like oh the american tabletop awards have been announced and then no one cares I don't get it. I just don't get it. What are you trying to achieve? Please tell not, us. Ian, do you not get it? I don't get it. I am, I am going to reach out for the next... I'm going to email them for the next guy and say, look, you, you put this out every year, but what are you actually trying to achieve? Can you please like explain it to us so we can like tell our listeners? That'd be great. Yeah. We opened the year with our bumper episode looking at the fiasco that Wizards of the Coast found themselves in with the changes to the open gaming license the document that allowed other companies to make Dungeons & Dragons content without having to pass everything by Wizards of the Coast all the time. Around that time, many companies announced their own open gaming license, as many looked to games other than Dungeons & Dragons as the ire over the moves grew. Wizards were forced into a massive backtrack on their open gaming license plan, and since then, some companies have continued to work out ways to make it easier for folk to make new products with their systems and licenses. Main Wizards of the Coast rival Paizo Publishing has just released their first draft of their own called The Orc, that's the Open RPG Creative License. Paizo are the publisher of the Pathfinder and Starfinder RPG. Pathfinder originally started as an alternative to Dungeons & Dragons and has grown into a well-regarded game in its own right. From the post. In January... Paizo and an alliance of more than 1,500 tabletop RPG publishers announced our intention to support the development of the Open RPG Creative License, ORC, a system-agnostic, perpetual, irrevocable open gaming license that provides a legal, safe harbour for sharing rules, mechanics, and encourages collaboration and innovation in the tabletop gaming space. The ORC is not explicitly a Paizo license, but is intended for the common use of the entire games industry across a wide variety of games and platforms. 
Over the last several weeks, we have been closely working with Azora Law, an intellectual property law firm that works with Paizo and several other game publishers, to develop and refine a working draft of the Orc license for public discussion and refinement. The first public draft of the Orc license is now complete, and we welcome the feedback of individual publishers on the official Orc license project Discord found here. We were a little dubious of the 1,500 publishers claim as we've heard from other folk more involved in the RPG industry than us that some of that number are merely interested in what Paizo are doing as opposed to officially on board. We reached out to Paizo about the 1,500 publishers claim and they replied, The new open RPG creative license is being built system agnostic for independent game publishers under the legal guidance of Azora Law, an intellectual property law firm that represents Paizo and several other game publishers. Paizo is paying for this legal work. We have invited game publishers worldwide to join us in support of this system agnostic license that allows all games to provide their own unique open rules reference documents that open up their individual game systems to the world. They have joined the effort by signing up using a form on this blog page with a link to the blog page. They were then invited to a Discord server to provide input to Azora Law. We have a partial list here with a link to the partial list. They continue to provide feedback on the draft of the license. Yeah, there's maybe some 50 or so publishers on that list, but it's a list we have linked to before. So we are a little dubious about the 1,500 claim that they keep counting at Paizo Publishing. It does feel to me like there's maybe a bit of steam being taken out of Paizo's sales here, especially with the backtrack from Wizards of the Coast and moving Dungeons & Dragons SRD into Creative Commons. So we'll see what comes of this down the line. I mean, it's good that more licenses are out there for people to do something with, to actually create their own good things with. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for it in principle, just not entirely sure that Paizo is going to get the uh, attention they think it's going to get over the next few weeks and months. Yeah, and it's nice to see that other companies are offering licenses as a sort of more open license that literally is available to anyone, like the common, uh, you know, was it, is it CC licenses that you can get for other work yeah. on the internet and stuff. But yeah, it's just that big number and then having a partial list of 50 i get that maybe not everyone wants to be named and hence the 50 are people who are happy to have their name against it while others sort of looking at it and, and maybe are on board but don't want to be named i don't know but yeah it's just great to see that we have another option here um, not relying on just one single license for everything yes indeed now we've got some late breaking news from the world of chess jamie well it's late breaking news to us recording this will be maybe old news to you as you're listening yes, to this, but still. The Kenya Open is an annual national chess tournament in Nairobi, Kenya. Of those who attended, 99 were organized into the women's competition. And from that, a new player called Millicent Awur was seeming like she was having a very strong debut and likely to win the over $3,000 in prize money. However, Millicent Awur was revealed to be 25-year-old Stanley Omondi, a known male chess player who'd signed up dressed in a burqa and spectacles. He was ejected in the fourth round after officials were concerned about accusations of profiling due to the religious wear and didn't want to act earlier. Bernard Wanjala, president of Chess Kenya, told BBC Sport Africa, He acknowledged that indeed he is a man. He regrets what happened, apologised and said he was only doing that because he had financial difficulties and thought winning the title will help him overcome. We didn't have any suspicion at first because wearing a hijab is normal, but along the way we noticed he won against very strong players and it'll be unlikely to have a new person who has never played a tournament being very strong. One of the red flags we also noted was the shoes. He was wearing more masculine shoes than feminine. We also noticed he was not talking, even when he came to collect his tag. 
You couldn't speak ordinarily when you are playing, you speak to your opponent because playing a chess game is not war, it's friendship. Wanjala went on to say a Monday would probably receive a ban of several years, but would not likely be banned from chess forever. Amundi wrote an apology letter saying he was ready to accept all consequences. Wow, extraordinary. Well then. What a story. Chess, yeah. is, chess is big business. It, teenagers and young people are currently in the middle of chess fever. Yeah. Where I work with children, we have now got about three or four separate chess boards and almost every day kids are playing it. We have not wow. lost we have not lost like full chess boards in a long time this is unprecedented wow it's cool to play chess there you go yeah yeah but is it ever going to be cool as in the middle ages when you know bards and jesters would include chess problems in their songs and poems bring it back jamie Get, get on this get in the stages when you're on stage you should like post chess problems no listen 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 Matt, you got the wu-tang clan members of the wu-tang clan who are massive chess fans they they yeah. they know what they're doing i i i'm rubbish hasbro owners of wizards of the coast among others has announced two new hires tim kilpin will join as president of toy licensing and entertainment and gina goetter will join as chief financial officer cfo both will take up their positions on the 18th of may Hasbro CEO Chris Cox said of the hires, We are excited to welcome Tim and Gina to Hasbro. I'm confident that their skills and qualifications will complement Hasbro's existing leadership team as we execute against our Blueprint 2.0 strategy, which is focused on bringing our brands to life for consumers of all ages, maximizing the value of our IP, and creating long-term shareholder value. Kilpin has previously held roles at Mattel, Walt Disney and Blizzard, and Goetter joins the company from Harley-Davidson. Now it seems that Hasbro are looking to expand on its licensing with the Kilpin hire by the sounds of it. Obviously the Dungeons and Dragons movie is out right now and is being very well received worldwide, it's taking a lot of money. And we've talked before about, well obviously a lot of the problems that the OGL uh, issues caused at the start of the year with Wizards of the Coast were because that Hasbro were looking to maximize the value of their IP, as Chris Cox says in that quote. Hopefully they won't make the same mistakes again, bringing in these folk, but who knows, they might try and tread over all ground once the dust has settled. We shall see. <sighs> it's entire, no, James' no. entire comment. Yeah, that's my entire comment. No, it's good, I like it. Just a couple of uh, opportunities and events here, folks. While I was looking into Kickstarter issues for the cast, I came across the Creative Scotland Fund. Now, this is a £50,000 fund set up with backing from the UK National Lottery to support Scottish-based creators who are running Kickstarter projects. Live projects on the Kickstarter site can be submitted for consideration, and if successful, they'll receive up to 5 to 10% of their goal from the Creative Scotland Fund. So yeah, if you're a game creative on Kickstarter right now, do look into that. You might be able to get a little bit of funding to push you over the edge to your goal. And Tabletop Scotland is happening on the 25th to 27th of August. I know we have previously reported there was a little bit of doubt as to whether that would go ahead, but the Jura Centre is going to be remaining open until at least uh, March of next year. So the con can go ahead this year. So 25th to 27th of August, we're going to be there. And tickets go on sale on the 29th of April. So we hope to see you there. And yeah, it'll be a great event. They've got a load of new exhibitors and more space. And I believe they're putting, I I believe they're like powering back a little bit of their uh, sort of like 
talks and that kind of thing to make a bit more room for events and exhibitors, etc. as well. So should be a really good one. Excellent. We'd like to take a little moment now to give a shout out to our patrons, especially James Naylor. Thank you very much, James, for coming on the cast and telling us about the ITB acquisitions. That was most helpful. And Sean Newman of the Gamelot team. They're both our executive producers and give us a bit of money each month to help the running of the cast. And you can join them on our Patreon for just $1 a month. It really helps us out with running costs of the site and cast. There's numerous other ways to support us on the site. You can find links to those in the show notes, find merch, um, little donations, that kind of thing. Uh, help us out any way you can. Even a little share on your social medias, which is totally free, really helps us out, especially with podcast discoverability. If you like Brainwaves, please do share and give us a like. That is really, really helpful. But Jamie's back, so the Monopoly news is back. You yeah, I'm back. But feel I'm about actually... that. Feel yep. about that how you like. I mean, the, yeah, well, well. I'm not going to judge you much. I thought I thought I'd take everyone back in time to the heady days of 2016 and one of the most awkward political moments of the last seven years. I mean, there have been a lot, but this one is. I I mean, you're really going to clarify that. (laughs) Yeah, this was, if you recall, Hillary Rodham Clinton in the run up to the 2016 presidential election said, "I don't know who created Pokemon Go." But I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. Oh, <laughs> oh. With Draco that Whitlock, I'm, 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 I'm amazed you didn't win. You know, I, I wonder why. Um, anyway, <laughs> this is related to the Go uh, online digital series of games. I say that. It's not developed by Niantic. It's published and developed by Scopely, the previous publishers of Yahtzee with Buddies. This is a game described as highly social. It's Monopoly Go. Players will be playing Monopoly on a virtual board, or they'll have a mode that sees players establishing real estate empires to gain new boards to play Monopoly on. All the while, other players are attempting to steal money and destroy your empire. (laughs) Oh, it's late-stage capitalism. Wow! Wow! I can't deal with this. I'm going. I'm. I'm going again. I'm off. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Fair yeah. Enough. Where do you go from? Where do you go from here? Uh, out on the road again. Bye. <laughs> yeah, I think we wrap that up there. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. If you like what you've listened to, then the best way to help us out, as ever, is to share the podcast and drop us a review and rating, especially on iTunes. It's really helpful with podcast discoverability. We don't like doing the like and subscribe thing, but it is just the nature of podcasts unfortunately you can also follow us uh, you can follow Oliver on the Tabletop Games blog where he writes excellent articles please go and check him out our discord link will be in the show notes you can come along there where we've got a very friendly and growing community and regular games nights uh, Twitter is the giant brain that's mostly myself Instagram is the giant brain UK Facebook is the giant brain that's all mostly me posting on there website is giantbrain.co.uk where you can find all our articles I've recently put up a how to play and run Blades in the Dark guide it's doing well please go and check that out it's fine Uh, it's just (laughs) as good as Catan Darkest Dungeon Magnate thank you Andrew I'm I'm going anyway yeah you're fine that's that's my opinion of you after all these years fine yay I'm just as good as all these games (laughs) that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me (laughs) it probably is thank you very much listen everyone bye for now bye thank you it's all fine